Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to a bank in order to help him obtain a loan? These documents and others were provided to Deutsche Bank uh, on one occasion where I was with them in our attempt to obtain money so that we can put a bid on the Buffalo Bills. In the wake of the coronavirus crisis, stocks have stopped trading on Wall Street after a 7% drop in the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 in the first minutes of trading this morning. Five members of Congress close to the president now say they're in self-quarantine because they had contact with someone who tested positive for coronavirus. Does the president plan to get tested? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So taking a break today from our primary concerns, we'll we'll return to our actual primary concern here at Trumpcast, Donald Trump. And in particular, his twisted relationship with the Twisted Bank, whose name was once widely mispronounced in America as Douche Bank. That's terrible. Come on. That's so tacky. It's Deutsche Bank, not Douche Bank. Deutsche Bank has nothing to do with that kind of tacky stuff. It's the Nazi bank, Deutsche Bank, which is why it was a match made in heaven when Trump turned up at its doorstep looking for dough. And we're about to, looking to you, Supreme Court, on March 31st, find out all the gory details of the Deutsche-Trump relationship. That is, if the Supreme Court upholds the rulings of the lower courts and decides in Trump versus Deutsche Bank that the Committees on Financial Services, that's Maxine Waters, and the Intelligence Committee, that's Adam Schiff, have a constitutional authority to subpoena Trump's creditors for the president's financial records. Unless we get some really twisted Kavanaugh-Thomas business on the court, there's an expectation that SCOTUS will do the right thing here and rule with Deutsche Bank that Trump can't keep this stuff away from Congress and make his bank defy this subpoena. That's March 31st, and that's when we find out if the people are going to get any financial transparency from this president. But I'd argue that we can almost get more transparency and certainly all the stage setting we'll ever need from David Enrich, my guest today. His white whale for 10 long years has been Deutsche Bank. David has followed 100 trading floors worth of woe, beginning with a suicide at Deutsche Bank, back through their role with the Nazis' empire building, and up through their relationships with the likes of Jared Kushner, Jeffrey Epstein, and Donald Trump. Douche bank, by the way, is definitely not the right pronunciation. Anyway, Enrich is a terrific reporter for The New York Times and possibly an even better writer of books. Dark Towers is a sweeping chronicle of the devastation wrought by one bank and its most famous client. Welcome to Trumpcast, David. It's great to be back here in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, um, home, home territory. So Deutsche Bank, an obsession of yours and certainly a preoccupation of mine. We had you here last time talking about a smaller sliver of your reporting on Deutsche Bank. And now we have the whole thing. And it's, it. I just, you wrote the hell out of this book. Thank you. And maybe you can start with some storytelling, just some of the stuff that you encountered along the way about Deutsche Bank's past, about its more recent past with Trump. And let, then we can speculate a little about its future. Uh, sounds great. First of all, 
one of the pleasures of writing and reporting this book is that it forced me to go basically talk to every single person under the sun who I could find and who was willing to talk to me. And the great thing about writing about a bank as dysfunctional and just messed up as Deutsche Bank is that as a general rule, anyone at a senior level or even a mid-level who leaves Deutsche Bank does so with a really bitter taste in their mouth. And for a journalist, and you know this, there's no easier way. That's just very ideal circumstances for someone who's trying to identify and then build relationships with sources. And so and I spoke to about 200 people for the book, and it, a lot of them were people who had left Deutsche Bank, some at, a very, at the very top of the bank, who had not really an axe to grind, but had had a very strong view one way or the other on the bank's deep problems and who was to blame for that. And so, and I went back and really just started at the beginning for Deutsche Bank, which was uh, 1870. Yep. This is Deutsche Bank's 150th birthday. <laughs> Happy <laughs> birthday. Today? Not today, but this year. Yeah. And the bank was, it got off, it had a very specific role to start, which was helping German industrial companies spread their wings internationally. And that over time, over the ensuing decades became, it morphed into supporting the Nazis spread their wings internationally. And then it went back after World War II to being just this bank that was really helping German companies and to, to some extent European companies really rebuild the continent after World War II. And it played this kind of normal, fairly, I think, healthy role for a capitalist economic system in through most of the 20th century with, you know, putting aside the brief Nazis, Nazi period. Notwithstanding, which, yeah. Yeah, not, not, notwithstanding that. And then in the late 80s and early 1990s, the bank decided that it need to, needed to get a lot more profitable very quickly. And and why was that? Just uh, The reason was that this was the kind of the end of the Cold War. Markets were globalizing. The economy was globalizing. Mm -hmm. And there were all these huge Wall Street banks that were coming and kind of invading um, Deutsche Bank's turf in Germany and the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And Deutsche Bank needed to become, if it was going to get people to buy its stock and do business with it, it needed to be able to tell customers and investors that, look, we're just as profitable and just as ambitious as the Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. and city groups of the world. Mm -hmm. And their way of doing that was that they wanted to get as big as possible, as quickly as possible in investment banking and kind of the, the have the big trading floors and just have these, you know, the big swing dicks of mm -hmm. Wall Street that were something that was a, it was a very American invention. And so this hidebound German institution went through this really rapid metamorphosis where it went from being this kind of proud national icon of Germany into something that bore much closer resemblance to a Goldman or a Morgan Stanley or a, a, or a Lehman, right? Or, right. And Lehman, in fact, that's an interesting point because Lehman, in fact, was a, a specific model that some of the bank's most senior executives were emulating. Yeah. And you, um, so you described this kind of, now I'm forgetting the German name, and you probably had to work up some German to get this. At least you had to learn to pronounce Deutsche like that and not like douche, right? Which was the <laughs> early American pronunciation. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I mean, just thinking of those investment bankers as we imagine them from greed is good days, yes. you know, just not able to get their minds around this thing. But also there's some German word you give for the kind of like this kind of Senate group. Oh, the Vorstand. Vorstand, yeah. That's, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right either, to be honest with you. I've heard many different pronunciations of it. I think that's I think that's probably right. Um, this Vorstand group and, and how different they were from the kind of star system um, right. in America. You think of them as like 
discreet. It was a committee, essentially, that was, and it was meant to dissipate power so that there wasn't this unitary chief executive who was in charge. And it was, it's interesting. I mean, this is something, it's an outgrowth of the German experience with the Nazis and with fascism. And yeah. there was this deep distrust built into German society and corporate governance of having all-powerful single leaders. And they had been down that path with Hitler, and that really understandably scarred a lot of uh, many Germans. Yeah, but you get the sense that um, while Germans, and including uh, Trump's family, you know, had been burned by what you call the unitary, unitary executive, say, of the Third Reich, Hitler, um, you know, or the Kaiser or whatever, that they also were aware that there was a will to power back to that, right, in them. I mean, it's almost like... A, Absolutely. Yeah. No, the, the, I mean, the story of Deutsche Bank is one of, kind of this unbridled ambition yeah. that is right beneath the surface at all times. And eventually what, you know, it breaks free at Deutsche Bank. And it careens out of control very quickly with these devastating consequences all over the world. And so that really is the arc of Deutsche Bank. It goes from kind of having the the superego in charge, kind of holding everything in check. And then finally, the id gets unleashed and mm -hmm. all hell breaks loose. So let's talk about that point at which the Vorstand starts to understand that it needs to loosen its tie and roll up its sleeves and act a little more like like Lehman or yep. or Merrill or or the the banks of the American investment banks, um, and less like the Swiss banks. So this process begins in the early '90s. It really accelerates by the mid '90s when they hire a guy named Edson Mitchell, who is a impulsive, charismatic, kind of visionary leader at Merrill Lynch, and he comes over. And Deutsche Bank gives him basically a blank check to hire as many people as he wants. And so he goes on this epic hiring spree, bringing in thousands and thousands of people from Merrill and from other big Wall Street firms, including Lehman, Bankers Trust. And, you know, they are building very quickly from the ground up this big investment banking powerhouse. But that's not enough. They a few years afterwards, they realize that they, you know, just hiring a lot of people isn't going to cut it. And so they pay $10 billion to buy Bankers Trust, which was to put it like, I think to put that in context, most people haven't don't remember Bankers Trust, but this was a bad out of control bank, so much so that some people inside Deutsche Bank at the time were arguing that they should buy a more prudent conservative Wall Street firm like mm. Lehman Brothers. Mm. And so so Bankers Trust was way off in this kind of in the fringes of banking. Mm -hmm. um, and this became the culture that Deutsche Bank imported from America. And, you know, I don't know if we want to go right down this path right now, but this is exactly the time that Deutsche Bank starts doing business with Donald Trump. I mean, they're so desperate to get a foothold in the United States and to find customers who are essentially unbankable to mainstream financial institutions, mm -hmm. that they just go kind of bottom fishing for anyone who has money and who is desperate. And obviously Trump fits that bill perfectly. Yeah. I mean, this has been a theme of the show that, and I, I always think of Howard Stern here, he needed people on his show that came cheap and that were willing to ham up their mm -hmm. role um, because of a combination of just eagerness for attention and 
absolute desperation. Um, and so, you know, at that point, Trump joined the whack pack, basically, you know, which included Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf and quote Wendy the Retard. That's, I've never listened to or watched Howard Stern. So I'm really just, I'm drawing blanks on these. Yeah. Yeah. He had people, you know, show up with with what he called micro penises and show them to him so he could oon over it. But anyway, carnivalesque stuff that is a hallmark of like picking up desperate people. And those mm-hmm. are the kind of contestants that showed up on The Apprentice toward the end. Celebrity apprentice has-beens and you know people with too much plastic surgery and and Trump-like types and that and the fact that he could you know he couldn't bank anywhere and only someone looking for a desperate person that they could saw a little money out of um, right and he couldn't yeah. bank anywhere for good reason right yeah, so he had defaulted over and over again on all sorts of loans and debt and his companies had declared bankruptcy multiple times. Mm -hmm. And so this was a, and it's not like he just kind of did this gracefully. He did this with almost, you almost got the sense that Trump enjoyed the act of stiffing his lenders. And he would boast about it. He wrote books where he was boasting about how he took some sort of pride and pleasure in ripping off the banks. Mm -hmm. And you know, you kind of almost have to respect that grudgingly that he's so open and honest about it. And it's not like these banks are poor, innocent victims either. But when you start defaulting on loans over and over again, the anticipatable consequence of that is that you're not going to have banks willing, or at least mainstream banks, willing to touch you. But Deutsche Bank was so desperate to get a foothold in the United States and to get American customers. You know, One of their executives at the time described this to me as the strategy basically boiled down to they wanted the scraps. The Deutsche mm. Bank needed to go for damaged customers. Mm-hmm. And Trump was a perfect damaged customer. He was desperate for a bank to do business with. Deutsche Bank was desperate for clients that it, that wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. And match made in heaven. Match, match made in hell. Taj Mahal, was that the era that he was, was – what did he need his money for at that point? Remind me. From Deutsche Bank, he wanted money. He was kind of moving past the casinos and into mm-hmm. the phase of his career where he was building and taking over huge skyscrapers. And so this was right. a pivotal point in his business career. So he – the first several hundred million dollars that he borrowed from Deutsche Bank in the mm-hmm. late 90s was to buy and then refurbish uh, 40 Wall Street, which is this beautiful Art Deco tower mm-hmm. in Lower Manhattan. And then to build from the ground up a huge uh, high rise right across from the UN in Midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And from there, he wanted a mortgage for the GM building in Manhattan. Then he was selling some or trying to get Deutsche Bank to sell bonds on his behalf for his casino companies, which were bankrupt. And then it was in Chicago. So this went on. But Deutsche Bank's role really allowed Trump to move past the framework of him being this kind of struggling, uh, slightly clownish casino figure Mm -hmm. and become a real player in the commercial real estate market, which Mm -hmm. is what he ultimately made his name as. And that that, that it became a kind of defining trait of Donald Trump, that he was this huge real estate magnet, not just a casino guy. Right. Or a licensing or licensing person. Right. Yeah. He was a builder. And the his ability to claim that he was, a, you know, it's true. He was a builder. He built some buildings and they were like, I think by all accounts, like reasonably nice buildings. Mm-hmm. And he did it with with the essential financial support of Deutsche Bank. He wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. You know, it's funny because I remember beginning to hear the name Deutsche Bank and actually thinking that there was something um, more solid about them because mm-hmm. they were European. And, uh, you know, whatever that inclination is because they because it was German that, you know, we knew about 
American bankers, American psycho, like that particular profile, but that there must be something super solid about someone that had Deutsche Bank behind him. And later when he's banking with the Kazakh, you know, yep. Bank of Kazakhstan or whatever, it seems like these were actually kind of the glory days for him um, when Deutsche Bank... Yeah, he had a great relationship with Deutsche Bank, and he played off of that, and Deutsche Bank played off of it, too. I mean, he, Trump, Deutsche Bank would use Trump as kind of a marketing prop, Mm. and it it was valuable to them. And he, at the time, was one of the kind of, he he was a celebrity, and he would attract crowds. I mean, Deutsche Bank would host this uh, golf pro-am golf tournament in outside of Boston every fall, and Trump would be one of the celebrity participants, and mm-hmm. he would go around signing people's $100 bills on the sidelines, mm-hmm. and Deutsche Bank would shoot promotional videos with Trump. And so he was someone who really helped Deutsche Bank, at least in the short term, build up a reputation in the United States at a time when the company was really staking its future to a large degree on getting big quickly in America. So, but what's crazy to me is they, so we know why Trump did it. He didn't have other options, last stop on the block. But I don't quite get how the Vorstand, the recently folded, dissolved Vorstand, like whatever was left of that sensibility, just not someone with moral principles, but just someone with some actuarial tables, yep. decided to blow past these norms so much that they not only were acting like Lehman, they were acting like the Kazakh bank. I mean, they were greedy and they were reckless right. and they were disorganized. And that yeah. is kind of boiled down to that. There is people in Germany were not paying a whole lot of attention to what was happening mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. And, and these bankers were incentivized to cut corners and to just do what would earn them fees in the immediate term. And so if you're a banker trying to arrange a $100 million loan for Donald Trump, your interests aren't so much – the question of whether Trump's going to default in a Mm -hmm. few years – that's a, that's a relevant question, but mm-hmm. it's not the driving force. The driving force is that if you're arranging a huge loan to Trump, your little division of the bank is going to get, a, I don't know, $10 million in fees maybe. And, yeah. and of that, your little team gets a cut of it. Yeah. And so you have a direct personal financial incentive to do these sorts of deals. And again, it's not just with Trump. I mean, Trump, obviously, with hindsight, since he's now the president, everyone's paying rightly so, a tremendous amount of attention to him. But Deutsche Mm -hmm. Bank was doing this with all sorts of customers. And they Mm -hmm. they were going to do the most aggressive deals they could in order to meet these financial targets that were being set at the very top of the bank. And they provided just a powerful motivator to just dive headlong into relationships that if you were evaluating it on a long-term basis would seem reckless and mm-hmm. irresponsible, but on a short-term basis, they were making money. Yeah, I've started to think of Trump's sort of sole superpower as that is that he he lacks, or maybe it's his deepest lack, the gift of fear, you know, what like Gavin DeBecker calls the gift of fear. Yep. And he seems to be able to sleep through a short night without just a cold, horrible feeling that he's not a cold, horrible feeling that he's a bad person. You know, Mark Singer said he's unmolested by the rumbling of a soul. You don't even need a soul in here. Just the fear that you're going to be completely wiped out tomorrow or impeachment or imprisonment, that those things don't seem to he just doesn't have that curl up in fetal position you know, it, that that we've seen in every banker. I mean, it, it, Harvey Weinstein supposedly is a, having panic attacks at Bellevue. It's yep. not like at some point someone so powerful and so immoral gets just afraid for either his life or his finances or his children. But Trump seems to never 
get afraid well, of those things. But they must have a Deutsche Bank. These guys are not total. Okay, everyone wants a million dollar co- commissioner fee on whatever the hundred million dollar loan. But there look, were the, people at Deutsche Bank saying, "Please don't do this." Yeah, well, the, look, the dirty secret of Wall Street in general, and I think this is one of the main reasons for Deutsche Bank's collapse ultimately, is that. The way you get paid in a bank is that, especially in the up until the financial crisis, was that if your group makes, let's say, a million dollars, you're getting paid in part as a percentage of that. And so mm-hmm. if your group makes a million dollars, maybe you're going to get $100,000. Mm-hmm. And you have an incentive, a clear incentive to make a million dollars for your group and for the bank because you get a big chunk of that. But conversely, if your group loses a million dollars, you're not getting negative $100,000. Mm-hmm. You're getting zero. And so there's the incentives are just completely lopsided in favor of stepping on the gas and, and just shooting for the moon because you have the possibility of a huge payday, but there's no downside risk attached with if you, you know, fall flat on your face. Mm-hmm. And so that's what bankers were doing. And this is happening across Wall Street, but it was no none more so than at Deutsche Bank where these traders and investment bankers and lenders were just throwing caution to the wind in the hopes of striking it rich on these paydays. And really, you know, the worst case scenario for them personally was that maybe they lose their job and Wall Street is a place that has a very short memory. And so you just get hired somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. round and round we go. And it's also the time when, because it is amazing to remember that investment bank, even just the expression investment mm-hmm. bank was different from banks that just that appeared in yep. in nineteen eighty. And I just I didn't or in the eighties, I didn't quite understand how in Dartmouth National Bank where I had my forty dollars and you know and got fifty cents, you know, a year yep. or whatever on it. Uh, maybe not quite that much, but was different from these banks and that they were just so different in kind. And then to have them incentivized to play positions for such short periods yep. of time in the market, you come to this uh, trader mentality where you just said payday, right? You want the day where you make $100,000. They tell us to stay with the market, but they don't stay with the market. Well, one of the things I've thought about a lot is that banks, this type of bank is often kind of disparagingly referred to as a casino. Yeah. And the the traders at the banks are essentially gamblers. It's not the best analogy, though, as I've thought about this ah. more, because at a casino, if you're going to play at a casino, you're going to lose more often than not. Uh-huh. These guys are, they're like playing with house money. They're yeah. not, there's very little downside. You are not likely to enter the casino of Wall Street and emerge broke or mm-hmm. brokenhearted. You're much more likely than not to emerge, even if you fail, with a fortune. And that just creates all sorts of incentives for bad behavior. And we've seen that over and over and over again. Deutsche Bank is kind of the poster child. And as you said at the outset, I've been obsessing about this for the past decade. So I'm biased in in favor of looking at Deutsche Bank. But you'd see the same bad incentives that took down Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or AIG. Mm. You can see the same bad incentives that nearly took down banks like Citigroup or Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs. And so there's this is a pattern, a well-established pattern in this world. And it's Mm -hmm. one that... It's hard to address, but mm-hmm. as long as those types of incentives are prevailing, mm-hmm. you're going to have catastrophes, financial catastrophes. Now, when you talk about the gambling metaphor and its problems, who's Trump in that? Is he, as some people say, the fish at the table? Like, is he the one being taken advantage of? Not in this scenario. I yeah. mean, Trump, like, if anything, Trump actually, maybe accidentally, was very savvy in his dealings with Deutsche Bank. Okay. I mean, he... He first defaulted on debts that Deutsche Bank was involved with in around 2003 or so. 
And one division of Deutsche Bank said, okay, well, that sucks. Mm -hmm. We're not doing business with Trump anymore because he has proven once again that he's going to default and he just embarrassed us and burned us and burned our clients. So we're done. Mm -hmm. And two years later, he goes to a different arm of Deutsche Bank and says, hi, I have like a big project I want to do in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I would like to borrow $640 million. And the bankers in this different division of the bank are just so blinded by the desire for the fees and the mm -hmm. interest that this is going to churn out for them mm -hmm. that they dive into it. Mm -hmm. And a couple years after that, Donald Trump defaults on that debt and goes so far as to sue Deutsche Bank for trying to collect on the loan and tries to get $3 billion in damages from the bank. And once again, Deutsche Bank washes its hands of Donald Trump. And a few years after that, he comes back to a different arm of the bank. Mm. And that arm of the bank is so blinded by their desire for short-term profits that they're like, sure, we'll do business with you and we'll lend you money to pay back the other arm of Deutsche Bank that you just defaulted on. So it's yeah. Trump emerges from this as not a victim at all, but as someone who might have been really playing Deutsche mm -hmm. Bank and really taking advantage of their disorganization and ineptitude mm -hmm. and greed and recklessness. Now, I don't know if that's by design on Trump's part or if that's as he kind of stumbled into it, but the end result when you're looking back at this over the past two decades of Deutsche Bank and Trump being really entwined mm -hmm. is that Trump emerges not only as the winner, but I mean, they saved him. I mean, they allowed mm -hmm. him to bounce back from what, for any other mortal, would have been career and reputation mm -hmm. destroying bankruptcies and business failures. And they allowed him to emerge again and again as a reputable businessman and someone who could keep building and keep buying and keep showing off to the world as mm -hmm. someone who had this kind of gilded business reputation, when in reality, over and over again, he had failed. Um, his, you know, you say for a mortal, and I sort of think that, the, you know, the rules of mortals and mammals aren't binding on him because he's he's like a reptile with his like cold blood. His ability to say, I don't pay taxes because that's smart. And I love debt. I'm the king of debt, you know, and even talking about defaulting on his loans as if that's savvy. You did encounter very much non-reptiles in the banking business, people who yep. like have beating hearts and who are emotional on these subjects. Yep. And, you know, just when you picture banking you don't picture it filled with emo hysterics and whatever and yet you start this book with a suicide yeah two of the main characters in the book are uh one of them is a guy named bill brooksmith who is a he's american and he's the son of a minister he grew up in rural illinois not poor but definitely not rich and kind mm. of claws his way up through the banking world and he's a, he's an expert in risk management and derivatives and it's, so he's, he's he's a very nerdy fellow mm -hmm. but he's someone who kind of took his dad his the his father the minister's kind of lessons i think in life and really adopted them in his career and mm -hmm. so he became as he climbed up through the ranks of Deutsche Bank over a nearly 20-year period, he became known as someone who was kind of the conscience of the bank. He would say no when people were trying to push things too far. Mm -hmm. He would try to rein people in. He was he was a voice of reason, and he was kind of an ethical compass for a lot of people mm -hmm. at the bank. Mm -hmm. And it, he, he rose up to be one of the most senior executives at the place. He was kind of the right-hand man to the CEO of the bank for a while. And then in January 2014, he's found hanging in his apartment. And... It, his son, Val Brooksmith, becomes a, kind of a, a big character in the second half of the book where Val 
takes it upon himself to try and understand the reasons for his father's death. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, when he determines that Deutsche Bank is a big part of the reason, to essentially avenge his father's death and punish Deutsche Bank. And it, it, he had all these he had all these documents or hard yeah, drives. Yeah, so yeah. it turned out, and Val, shortly after his father's death, got into his Yahoo and Gmail accounts looking for, trying to understand why his father had done this. Mm -hmm. And it, basically not looking for anything about Deutsche Bank, but looking for, you know, he figured, he told me that he figured there maybe he had another family or mm. he had crippling debts or some other horrible secret mm -hmm. that had driven him to despair. And instead what Val found by and large was that his father in his Yahoo and Gmail accounts mm -hmm. had been sending and receiving thousands and thousands of emails related to his work at Deutsche Bank. And that included just correspondence with very among very senior executives mm -hmm. plotting about how to do things or not do things at the bank. It included meeting minutes. It included spreadsheets. It included uh, loan documents, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And Val is uh, he's, he's a musician and he is not a finance guy or certainly mm -hmm. was not a finance guy. And so I started talking with him shortly after his dad's death. He, and you got in touch with him, right? Yeah, I was this. His father, Bill Brooksman, and Val Brooksman both lived in London at the time, okay. and I was also in London working at the Wall Street Journal yeah. at the time. And when Bill killed himself, that was it. Set off these rumors all over London about just something awful within Deutsche Bank, mm -hmm. and I'd been even at that point been kind of obsessing about Deutsche Bank for a few years. And so yeah. uh, a few of my colleagues and I started looking into the circumstances of Bill's death, and we split up the not very pleasant task of trying to talk to his family members, mm -hmm. and I got Val. Mm -hmm. And Val, it turned out, was pretty easy to find. He had an active social media presence, mm -hmm. and he agreed, ultimately agreed to talk to me in exchange for me calling off my colleagues who were, hmm. you know, going after his family members, essentially, which mm -hmm. is not fun and not a good look, but it's sometimes what we do as journalists. And it was just this this kind of Madoff in reverse, whose Madoff's son killed himself yep. after Madoff's imprisonment. There's someone in these systems that just can't take it. And that yep. where the whistleblower, I mean, we've seen this in the Trump administration, all the refugees, all the all the people have exited and are bitter, but who were holding secrets and who who do seem to be in pain of one kind or another yeah. as seriously or not as you take it. So I wonder why he didn't, or what does Val think and what do you think about why he didn't blow the whistle? Well, he, Bill Brooksman, that wasn't his style. Okay. He was someone who worked within the system. Yeah. And look, this isn't someone who hated the bank or hated bankers. He was someone who thought, one of the reasons he was a very effective as an executive, I think, is that he shared some of the core values that a lot of bankers do, which mm -hmm. is that we want to make money. That's mm -hmm. that is the motivating principle here. But Bill wanted to do it within certain parameters. He didn't want to violate the mm -hmm. law. He didn't want to betray his personal sense of ethics and his personal mm -hmm. principles. And but he very much wanted to work within the system. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of interesting just because I've referred to Val as a whistleblower in the past. And that's not quite right because mm -hmm. Val is not the one inside the institution mm -hmm. blowing the whistle on wrongdoing. He's almost acting himself. He's he's turning his dad into a whistleblower after the mm -hmm. fact. And and I, I don't say that in a negative way at all. It's it's actually quite amazing what Val, yeah. armed with these just voluminous raw materials, has managed mm -hmm. to do. And he's spreading these these files far and wide, including to journalists like me. And it, he's essentially turning his dad after his death mm -hmm. into someone who not only was standing up for what he believed to be right inside the bank, but is now sharing that with the world in a mm -hmm. way that is exposing a lot of the dirty laundry of Deutsche Bank in a way that just never 
ever, ever would have possibly come out. So are the emails, um, do they show, uh, because, you know, we've been looking during the impeachment um, with the texts around the Ukrainian matter. It's just interesting to see who's trying to push back Mm -hmm. on the efforts to cross lines. And, you know, we said like Colonel Vindman and even in even in short little snippets, you could tell this wasn't right with him. Is that the same with Brokesmith? Yeah. I mean, you can to be clear, not with Trump stuff. I mean, there's no evidence of Brokesmith having been involved directly with any Trump stuff. But over and over again, Brokesmith is pushing back against various transactions or business arrangements that he views as improper or unwise. Mm-hmm. And mm. and by and large, he loses those battles. And it, there are some exceptions to that. But in general, he is being steamrolled by an institution and its leaders that has grown just so out of control. Mm-hmm. And you, you can see in some of the things he's writing to his colleagues and his friends in these emails that he has really grown dispirited about where the banking industry has gone. And, and this is someone who is, he grew up in the banking industry. He was one of the pioneers mm-hmm. of this kind of modern age of- Derivatives finan- in particular. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He is one of the real founders of the modern derivatives market, which has all sorts of negative connotations mm-hmm. these days. But the way Bill had conceived this was that it was actually very helpful for a great many clients. Mm-hmm. And it, Derivatives, I mean, but listeners probably know this. The truth is I don't really know it, but I feel like derivatives were the Bitcoin of their time or the blockchain in the sense that they were seemed very difficult to explain. So it takes, it takes a certain mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it is extremely interesting to go from bankrolling the Nazis at Deutsche Bank um, in the 30s. And then, but also while American finance has a lot to do with futures trading in the kind of bread, ba- like the mm-hmm. place where Brokesmith's from, yep. you know, going to Chicago for open outcry trading and you're betting on soy and you're making those hand motions, you know, are you going to buy, sell, buy, sell? And that looks so different from lending to a government. Yep. Um, and that's an interesting collision because we feel sentimental, Americans, I think I do, feel Feel sentimental about those those futures markets because they're for farmers. Yeah, you know? and it's kind of a simpler time. And, and you're talking about an ice cream company, and that makes it that makes it feel like something that Brooksmith. I can imagine him getting behind. How can we protect farmers against the vagaries of their? And crops? look, it's not just farmers. I mean, that obviously has mm. kind of this rustic appeal. But yeah. the reality of the bank's role in a healthy, functioning economy and financial system is to help its customers, whether it's governments mm-hmm. or companies or individuals manage their finances and help kind of kind of provide the grease to help the economy moving quickly and smoothly. And mm-hmm. that's that's a healthy role for a bank to play mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. provide helping customers, whether it's an ice cream company or an airplane manufacturer or someone who's buying a home, mm-hmm. do kind of lubricate the economy and, and their finances. That's good. And mm-hmm. that's healthy. Where it gets out of control is when a bank like Deutsche Bank or like Lehman Brothers or like Goldman Sachs is just making these bets that are essentially backstopped by taxpayers because Mm. if these banks fail, it's on taxpayers to bail them out. And that then becomes very unhealthy. And if the banks are making tons of money off of their customers, that also is unhealthy because then they're not lubricating the financial mm-hmm. system in the economy. They're ripping off customers and they're kind of taking money out of the economy rather than putting it in. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's kind of a Rubicon that was crossed. Not even It wasn't even like a little bit over the line. It was the pendulum swung miles in the wrong direction right. during up until the crisis. And Deutsche Bank played a leading role in that. But Brokesmith was one of the few 
voices of sanity, mm-hmm. I think, inside of Deutsche Bank, at least. And one of the services that Val, his son, has provided is by showing the world not only how his father was standing up for what he believed was right, but also how his father was losing a lot of these battles and how mm-hmm. Deutsche Bank had just lost the capacity to govern itself mm-hmm. or to control itself. And that's kind of a scary thing to see. So scary. Did it, You've spent a lot of time with with Val, and I've, I've had some exchanges with Val. Um, he's really a fascinating and brilliant person. Um, and a complicated person. And, tr- and openly troubled yeah. with, you know, some... Hunter Biden style issues, let's say maybe right drugs or yeah. yeah, he's had some substance abuse issues. Over he's the years. had substance abuse issues, but it's definitely you know on a mission with this. What do you think happens to these figures that want to stay principal? I mean, do you think that it's always hard to figure out why someone might die by suicide? But it, do you think that Bill Brooksmith? was facing his complicity, which just felt like he was trying to be this bulwark against a certain kind of corruption and couldn't be? What what emerges in the emails? I mean, I, it's it's not just in the emails. I mean, there's, you know, I've seen the suicide notes that he left. Yeah. And I've seen some of, he met with a doctor and a psychologist in the months before his death. And I've seen those reports that kind of provide a pretty unfiltered glimpse inside what what he was thinking, at least at the time, and what he, what is that? Because that is tortured. very relevant in Trump times. I think to people who may find themselves, I, you know, the Republicans in the Senate say people who've stood shoulder to shoulder with Trump, in spite of you know earlier, that in a way that seems to to transgress their own moral codes. So tell me. I mean, I look. I, I first of all would be careful about drawing too many parallels yes. because this is a, someone who committed suicide, and that's not. I normally kind of a rational yes. act you yeah. know, by definition. So with that caveat, and he was tortured by what he'd seen inside the bank. He'd, he was tortured by his what he perceived his role to have been inside the bank, having missed what he thought, having missed some red flags, not even been complicit, but have, I mean, he described it at one point as his own carelessness, having mm. hurt the bank, which I think I actually disagree with. I don't think it was his carelessness. Mm. I think humans make mistakes, mm-hmm. but I think, over and over again, in hindsight, Bill Brooksmith was arguing for the right things and the safe course of action and the conservative kind of prudent course of action. And he was steamrolled by this bank that was so hungry for profits at, that it was had just abandoned any pretense of ethics or morality mm-hmm. or legality. And it, there's this is something I've seen over and over again inside Deutsche Bank, by the way. There's the when people raise concerns internally about what the bank is doing, whether it's in how they're policing against money laundering mm-hmm. or how they are just if they're playing accounting games, for example, mm-hmm. or how they're managing the risks. Employees who complain get squashed. Yeah. And they get they get tossed aside, they get put aside for promotions, they lose their jobs. And in some cases the bank goes out of its way to destroy their reputations. Mm-hmm. And that's not what was really happening with Brooksmith, but it, he was concerned, very much concerned that he was going to become collateral damage you of just that he'd bank. get fired. Well, not or... that he wasn't even concerned about getting fired, he was concerned about his reputation being destroyed. That mm. was what was keeping him literally keeping him up at night. Mm-hmm. And it, he was worried that – and look, again, this is not entirely rational, but yeah. he was viewing himself as having – I don't know if complicit is the right word, but he had f- missed, made mistakes in the job mm-hmm. that were now going to get pinned on him as a cause for all of these like mm. very deep, very serious financial scandals hmm. that Deutsche Bank was enmeshed with that federal investigators, including 
criminal prosecutors mm -hmm. were now investigating. And I think he was scared. And you know what? Like, given Deutsche Bank's propensity to throw people under the bus, especially mm -hmm. in order to save the skins of its top executives, I think he probably had some reason to be concerned. Reason, Okay, reason to be concerned that they would, that his reputation would be broken. And I know you don't want to make this parallel, but I just have to that, you know, Bill Kristol was on the show recently talking about Republicans concerned about their standing, just deeply concerned about their standing if they broke with the president. They're standing in their neighborhoods. They're standing with yep. red hats. Whether What would happen with trolls? I mean, just actively kind of quivering and unwilling or unable to see their place in history, as it seems Brokesmith was able to do, and instead just panicked about their short-term interests. Look, it's hard, right? It's I mean, hard. It's very... It's easy for us to be sitting in this like, yes. nice studio talking about how everyone should just stand up for what's right mm -hmm. and like yep. put their head above the parapet and you know stand up on principle. In the moment when mm -hmm. you're dealing with people who you've spent your entire career with and who yeah. are your friends, right? And it, who you and there's a lot of money on the line. That yeah. is a hard thing to do. And I mean, I've watched this. I don't have much experience in politics, but I do have a lot of experience in the finance world, yeah. and in particular with Deutsche Bank. And I've watched this in real time with some people who were employed by the bank and were wrestling with the question of whether to stand up and speak publicly about their bad experiences mm -hmm. and essentially blow the whistle. And I was just down in Jacksonville, Florida mm -hmm. last year, uh, which is where Deutsche Bank has all of its anti or a lot of its anti money laundering operations. Mm -hmm. And I had heard these rumors about. That, that people inside the bank had raised concerns about suspicious transactions in Trump and Kushner's accounts at mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank. The the interesting thing to me here is that I talked to probably 20 people who were either currently or recently at the bank in this anti-money laundering operation to mm -hmm. had some experience with the or at least knowledge of these Trump and Kushner transactions. And a lot of them wanted to stand up and do what was right. But 19 out of the 20 W w did not have mm. they just couldn't bring themselves to do it and it's not mm. because they were weak or they oh, were yeah. bad people or cowards or something it was because it risked their reputations it risked their livelihoods yeah. it risked their friendships and their relationships yeah. and there's one woman who ultimately did agree to speak publicly Tammy McFadden mm -hmm. who I, and I was with her kind of watching her wrestle with this and it was extremely hard and I just have the utmost respect for the courage and just guts that that took. Yeah. But I also watched a lot of other people who didn't, who couldn't quite bring themselves to do it and were, it, it's really, really hard. And I I would like to say, and if I were in their shoes, I would stand up and mm -hmm. speak publicly and take that personal risk. But who knows how I would, you know, it's, yeah. it's easy to say it. And it's a completely different thing to actually do it. What was Tammy McFadden's thought process? I mean, as I mean, you were she with was, her. Look, she was someone who, she was just scared out of her mind. Mm -hmm. She was, she lived in Jacksonville, Florida, which is pretty red part of a purple state. Yeah. And, or maybe it's a red state now. I don't even know. Oh, which, but, Florida? Is Florida even red? If, I think we're hoping Florida switches back. Okay. But yeah. So, but Jacksonville, Florida is a pretty red part of the state. Yeah. And she was... You know, she's a black woman in her, you know, middle aged and yeah. has no public profile. Mm -hmm. Her husband works in the finance industry, too. And she had seen some things that really, really troubled her within the bank. And then she'd been punished for it. And she had. What she, were some of those things? And she saw uh, there are a few things. And the biggest thing, the thing that at the time, this is 
about a year ago was most interesting to me is that she had seen weird stuff in Jared Kushner's accounts and as recently mm. as the summer of 2016. Mm. So right during in the middle of the presidential campaign. And summer of 2016, it's just, uh, you know, we all have flashbacks. Yeah, it was a crazy time. And it, we now know that that was also the time when Russia was directly interfering mm-hmm. in the presidential election in a variety of ways. And at that time, Tammy McFadden saw her job was basically she worked in the compliance division and mm-hmm. she would get this kind of uh, she had a computer program that would open. There'd be a queue of transactions that she that a computer system had flagged mm-hmm. as potentially suspicious. And mm-hmm. she was supposed to go through them and manually and just see if they were really suspicious. And she came to uh, some transactions involving the Kushner companies mm-hmm. and there was money being transferred in their from their accounts to some Russian individuals. And mm-hmm. she Googled the Russians names and there was re- she thought it was a no-brainer, and she mm-hmm. thought it very clearly this was something that was a potentially suspicious transaction, and as such, it gets re- it should get reported to the federal government. There's an arm of the Treasury Department that polices financial crimes, and right. that's just standard protocol. And these were these were oligarchs. They are proxies. The Prevazon. The <laughs> I wish I could say more. The reality is yeah. that she Tam. I know a little bit more, but yeah. I don't. But I don't know the full story, and so yeah. I'm a little reluctant to get into details. Mm-hmm. In part because Tam, and I, one of the reasons Tammy is tight lipped is that I know she has and her lawyers have spoken with law enforcement mm-hmm. about this, mm-hmm. and so I, there is an active investigation going on, mm-hmm. not necessarily into her stuff, but yeah. into Deutsche Bank's role with Russia and Russians and money laundering and things like that. And, and this wasn't something that this wasn't something that Mueller's investigation no. touched. Yeah, I, I never have fully understood why. The yeah, laundering and the banking stuff didn't come into that report. Um, do you have any any ideas? I, no, I don't. I mean, the only thing I can kind of hypothesize is that I, there were rumors, I think, in December of 2017 that Mueller had subpoenaed Deutsche Bank hmm. for Trump's record, fi, Trump's financial records, and Trump heard about that. There were news reports about mm-hmm. it, and Trump flipped out, and it, mm. he had said, "This is a red line. If Mueller crosses it." You know, mm-hmm. all hell breaks loose. And I don't know if that influenced Mueller's thinking or not, but mm-hmm. it does not appear that Mueller crossed that red line that Trump had drawn. I know that um, the the only small thing I know is that Adam Schiff was on a panel with me in, in Austin, Texas, a few years ago and said in Congress, and this is when the Congress, this is actually before 2018, so Congress, is, uh, Congress had essentially been hobbled in their investigation into Trump, but that he and his people were still looking into money laundering as if that was something that his committee, uh, the committees he was seated on, not not chairing, could, could look into and wouldn't step on Mueller. But it, that's only to suggest that this is obviously ongoing, long-term, yeah. some of it's SDNY, and, and Schiff's committee is still investigating, too. Yes. Right? Yeah, 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 that's right. And they've got, I mean, in fact, Schiff's committee, along with Maxine Waters' committee in, in the House, yeah. have probably the best hopes that exist of really getting to the bottom of some of this stuff, I think, because they subpoenaed Deutsche Bank back about a year ago for all of their Trump records. And it, that includes not only Trump's bank account statements and whatever tax documents they've got and things like that, but it also includes all of Deutsche Bank's internal records about potential money laundering concerns. Yeah. So Tammy McFadden... To end that story, by the way, she mm-hmm. types up the suspicious activity report. It goes to her superiors. Her superiors take a look at it and say, no, we're not filing that. And so mm-hmm. – and then she was fired after she complained mm-hmm. about it. And so the records of that, in theory at least, should be in Deutsche Bank's electronic vault. Mm-hmm. And if Deutsche Bank complies with the subpoena, 
then that will presumably there will be some public light shown upon this. Um, I have a kind of overarching question for you. Since we started by talking about Deutsche Bank's relation to the Nazi party, um, it it is distinctive. And we just, let me put the pieces together. We just had a guest on who grew up in the John Birch Society. And John Birch Society alleges, and you see some of this in Alex Jones and, and, and other conspiracy theories now, but it's long been a right-wing conspiracy that communists and the Jewish banking conspiracy are all taking over the world. When you hear the banks, often that yep. is a proxy for we hate the Fed and anti-Semitism. Yep. This bank is... Except for the Kushners, you almost never hear a Jewish name in this story. You know, you have the yep. son of a minister, you have, and then suddenly the Kushners, a Holocaust surviving family, yep. come to the bank. I mean, tell me about those collisions, because when they get in the ring with Lehman, which is, you know, an old American Jewish bank, um, and some of the older still banks like Goldman, they are in this territory that has largely been considered in the popular imagination, in the most fearful imagination, but also in fact, in the Jewish banking families, um, a Jewish territory. And, you know, coming in with the name Deutsche Bank and the history they had, I don't know. What did that do? Well, I mean, Deutsche, look, Deutsche Bank, it's not just this historical relic. I mean, there there's yeah. a history of anti-Semitism inside the bank yes. that extends probably not to the present day. But and I've talked as I spoke with dozens and dozens of former executives, and there were quite a few who were Jewish who remarked upon the kind of not explicit, but very kind of heavily implicit mm. anti-Semitism or in some cases racism for other people that mm. they encountered at a fairly senior level inside the bank. And some people, and including the Brooksmith family, because he was the son of a minister, mm -hmm. but he married uh, Val Brooksmith's mom, who is a Ukrainian Jewish refugee. Mm. And so they were not interested to them. Their family had been through the Holocaust themselves mm -hmm. and watched the Nazis kind of stomping through Europe. Mm -hmm. And it, they didn't want to buy a German car, for example. And so the notion of mm. going to work for a German bank was very hard to stomach initially. Mm. I and mean, ultimately, I think the allure of money and being involved in something mm. where there is an opportunity to build something mm -hmm. proved very enticing. But for a lot of customers and investors and employees, Deutsche Bank's reputation as not just having helped the Nazis, but also being not a very hospitable place mm -hmm. to Jews made it a, a bank that was not the place they wanted to work at or do business with. And I don't know if that was actually true in the Kushner's case at all. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that the Kushner's were, they needed a bank mm -hmm. the same way that Donald Trump needed mm -hmm. a bank. Mm -hmm. And given their company's finances and Charlie Kushner's legal problems, there were not all that many banks that were eager to jump mm -hmm. into bed with them. And Deutsche Bank if they if it had any kind of trepidations about that, it quickly overcame them. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, not only was lending money to the Kushner companies, but was also the largest personal lender to Jared Kushner and his mother, Sarah Kushner. And so they provided this desperately needed financial lifeline mm. to the Kushner family and the Kushner companies in much the same way that the bank was this lifeline for the Trumps. Mm -hmm. hmm. There has been a through line also on the show, but in, in all the reporting on Trump, that that there's something about the racism and the corruption that go hand in hand. Um, I can't quite figure out why that's true, except that you are acting in the shadows maybe in both cases. Like, it's just, it's difficult to get money. If you're taking money from racist organizations, you also need to hide it. And when you start hiding money, you 
you maybe start, there's too much sleight of hand involved, but it still remains to be seen if Trump is ever uh, taken down as some, some want him to want to see whether it'll be, it'll probably be on the financial misdeeds and not on the racism, right? Like it's just, it's just. Um, Look, there's a big opportunity to get a lot more transparency into Trump's finances through Deutsche Bank coming up very soon. Yeah. The Supreme Court at the end of this month is hearing oral arguments in this case over whether Deutsche Bank needs to comply with these subpoenas for all of Trump's information and that two federal courts have already ruled that Deutsche Bank does need to comply. So the Supreme Court in the next few months is going to rule on whether the bank does in fact need to comply or if it's going to overturn these lower court rulings and and side with the Trump family. And if I think just looking and I'm not a legal expert, but I've talked to lawyers about this. And I think the consensus in the legal community is that the law is on the side of these congressional committees seeking to get this information. Mm-hmm. And if they prevail and they get this information, they'll probably get it over the summer. And, it, you know, all of a sudden, Trump's bitter political enemies in Congress will have these detailed financial records that Trump has been fighting mm-hmm. tooth and nail for several years to keep secret. And that's who knows what that will show. But whatever it is, Trump has proven very, I would say, desperate to keep it hidden. Trump has counted on and has done, you know, to some extent, a, a good job having his secrets kept by various professionals, who lawyers, doctors in some cases, mm-hmm. And the banks. So it it seems like he would not be able to block and tackle so effectively access to his money and his financial records if these institutions didn't also have something to lose. Like you see when the lawyers flip or when, say, Alan Dershowitz finally distances himself from Jeffrey Epstein, you know, there is a point at which you do not want your reputation torpedoed. And just for to keep Deutsche Bank alive, as you say, it might need to comply. But there must be still more dangers for Deutsche Bank going forward. I kind of feel like the ship has sailed a little bit How on that. You? I mean, their their reputation has been pretty thoroughly destroyed at this point. Yeah. And especially in the United States. And again, it's not just because of the... Thanks to Dark Towers, <laughs> Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an epic trail of destruction by David Enrich. You have not had an easy time with Deutsche Bank. <laughs> I haven't. But there's, you know, Deutsche Bank's bad reputation is very well deserved. And it would be yeah. very bad even were it not for Donald Trump. I mean, yeah. money laundering. Uh, violating international sanctions, yep. manipulating markets, evading taxes, bribing public officials. Yeah. The list goes on and on and on. And so, you know, yeah, there's probably some stuff that's not going to reflect very well on Deutsche Bank inside mm-hmm. these files that have been subpoenaed. In fact, I'm sure there is. But is it going to fundamentally change the narrative mm-hmm. that Deutsche Bank, which of what we already know and what's in this book, mm-hmm. that Deutsche Bank was reckless and so hell-bent on short-term profits that they violated all ethics and morality and mm-hmm. often the law. No, it's probably not going to be much worse than that. Hmm. The person who it could be very bad for is Trump, who mm-hmm. I don't know what financial secrets he's hiding, but the fact that he's desperately trying to prevent this stuff mm-hmm. from getting out in the open suggests that he is trying to hide something. Mm-hmm. And if these files become public, as they might this summer, mm-hmm. that has the potential to really, well, it won't be secret anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for being here. Your book, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. David, I can't believe that you've toughed this out for 10 years. I mean, this is not, I, you haven't been pursued by Black Cube, but it hasn't been easy. I mean, you've been really uh, down with some people who have a lot to lose and, from your reporting. And, um, and thanks for taking these risks. Well, thank you for having me. 
So that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let us know on Twitter. I kind of live there part-time. Condo timesharing. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. No inflation from 2019. $35 for the first year. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com dot com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Phil Circus and Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>